Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming up, we're going to talk about therapy. We're going to talk about archery. We're going to talk about love and anxiety and superpowers. Are you kidding me? Awesome. This week, we dive into the Bright Sessions. And later, I'll have a chat with show creator Lauren Shipman. Let's get into it. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey, welcome. Come on in. Have a seat. How was your week? Yeah? That's all right. Everyone has weeks like that. I know I have. The Bright Sessions is a show that defies convention. It's about a psychologist, Dr. Bright, who has a very unusual roster of patients. And most of the action takes place in her office during scheduled therapy sessions recorded by Dr. Bright for her note-taking purposes. It sounds like it shouldn't work. Two people sitting in a room and talking has always been a recipe for singularly uninteresting scene work. But The Bright Sessions, despite or perhaps because of this constraint, is an utterly captivating show. Dr. Bright is a remote and rather stiff therapist, but she's got her own stuff going on. Every one of her patients has a really elegant thread of story that winds through therapy and their lives. I don't want to spoil too much about the show since you're about to listen to it, so I'll just quiet down now. Settle back, take deep breaths, really just feel the weight of your body in this space. Whether you're sitting or walking or driving. Actually, no, do do none of this if you're driving. But uh, otherwise, get cozy. And really listen to episode one of The Bright Sessions. New patient, session one. Female, mid-twenties, no history of psychological counseling. She was skittish when making her appointment. Condition unknown. Come in. Dr. Bright? Um, Yes, hi, I'm here for a session. For a therapy session, that is. Two o'clock. I have a two o'clock appointment. It's my first time. In therapy, I mean, that's... Probably obvious. I'm Sam. Samantha. My name is Samantha Barnes, but you can call me Sam. Or Samantha. Either one is fine. Whatever you're comfortable with. It's your office. Which would you prefer? Uh, Sam, I suppose. If I had to pick. Well, Sam, why don't you come in? Right. Gosh, sorry. Please, take a seat. I don't have to lie down, do I? I never understood that. Freud is so insistent about it, and it just always seemed so weird. No, you're not required to lie down. What did you mean by that? By what? That comment about Freud. Oh, that. Um, nothing. I didn't mean anything by it. I mean, I don't know Freud personally or anything. I I mean, it's not a a personal interest of mine. (laughs) I, I probably just... Read something somewhere about Freud and his intense need for people to lie down while talking to him. I'm a researcher, so I spend a lot of time on the computer. And you know the internet just 
full of information. <laughs> so yes, I probably just read about Freud while I was doing my internet-ing. I mean, I'm sure you know all about Freud, <laughs> being a psychiatrist and all. I've read his works, yes. Right. Well, so that's, uh, that's a relief. <laughs> that I don't have to lie down, that is. It just seems silly. So, Sam, how are you feeling today? Good. I'm good. Uh, great, yeah. Th things are great. Is there anything in particular that's on your mind? No, no, not really. I don't really need therapy or anything. I mean, I'm not, you know, depressed or, or suicidal. <laughs> I mean, I have a nice life. A job I like, a nice apartment, a, a very understanding cat. Things are good. I just, um... Yeah, I saw your, your listing in the paper and it looked intriguing. That's all. What about it intrigued you? Well, therapy for the strange and unusual. I just, it sounded, well, unusual. And do you like things that are unusual? <laughs> no, I, I would not. I would not say that exactly. Then why did the listing attract you? What did you, what did you mean by it? I mean, why put a listing in the paper for therapy in the first place? It seems a, a little weird. I've learned that some people have problems that aren't exactly found in psychology textbooks. And a lot of those people don't know where to turn for help. That's where I come in. What do you mean? What, what kinds of problems? I'm afraid I can't discuss any of my past or present patients. Right, right, of course you can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's just, I think I might qualify for that, for the, the strange and unusual. Oh, why do you say that? Well, ever s since I was a kid, wait, you can't tell anyone about this, right? I mean, the, the same patient doctor confidentiality agreement still applies. Of course. I can't tell anyone what you tell me in this office. And you can't report me to any law enforcement or government agency or anything, right? Well, if you've hurt someone or plan to, I would have No, to... no, no, no. No, god, it's it's nothing like that. I, it's just Well, Okay, you will probably think that I'm completely insane. I mean, I think I'm completely insane. I have thought for 15 years. But, well, Here's the thing. Ever since I was a kid, I've been able to to do this, this thing that, for all intents and purposes, should not be possible. And I've read every book that I could get my hands on, and I've scoured what feels like the entire internet, and I've never come across any kind of explanation for it. And you probably will not believe me, but essentially, unbelievably, I can time travel. And it sucks. You don't enjoy it? What? No, I mean, it's... Oh, wait. Aren't you just a little bit curious about the whole I can time travel thing? I mean, that, doesn't that seem a little weird to you? It is certainly atypical, but no stranger than anything else I've ever heard. Wow. Wow, that's... Really? I guess that's sort of... 
sort of comforting. Have you, have you ever met anyone that, that can do what I do? I'm afraid that pesky doctor-patient confidentiality makes right. it... Right, of course. That makes sense. It would just be nice to know if someone had the same condition. Condition? Why do you call it that? Well, it's sort of involuntary. I mean, it's not like I hop into the TARDIS and sail off through time. I just go. Unexpectedly, at any time, I... I I don't have a choice. It just happens. Can you elaborate on that? Um, I get this sort of lightheaded, dizzy feeling, and then the edges of my vision go hazy, and I get this, like this weird, intense tightness in my chest, and then poof, I disappear. Or at least, I assume I disappear. I mean, I don't know, I've never seen it from the other side, obviously. And then I, you know, just reappear. Usually just a few minutes later, regardless of how much time I spend in the other place. And no one has ever seen this happen? Um, uh, I just tend to avoid, um, people. You don't have family? Boyfriend? Girlfriend? Friends? My parents are dead. Um, and I'm an only child, so... Where do you go when you disappear? Or, I suppose I should ask, when? I go everywhere. Every time, I mean. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Sometimes it's significant historical events. Sometimes there isn't another living soul around. I really have seen Freud, though. I've accidentally sat in on a few of his sessions. Those trips are okay. Not too eventful, but usually pretty interesting. And Freud doesn't mind the intrusion? How could he? What do you mean? He couldn't see me. They can never see me. I'm just there. It's like being stuck inside someone else's memory or something. I can move around, but I can't talk. I'm basically a ghost. Or, like, a reverse ghost. Not dead, but invisible. Or, well, not even born yet, I guess. Ugh, I don't know. That... That must be difficult. It's horrible. And you say this has been happening since you were a child? Yes. I think I was, um, ten years old when it first happened. I was so scared. Um, but... But it was also kind of exciting, too. I remember I went back to ancient Greece. It was... It was really cool, to be honest. <laughs> when I came back, I thought I had just fallen asleep and had the most vivid dream ever. Um, the second time it happened, I, I knew it wasn't uh, just dreaming. And when was that? About a year later. The trips didn't happen very frequently when they first started. But um, when, when I was a teenager, they, uh, they started happening all the time. Why do you think the trips increased? I don't know. May I ask, what happens on these trips? You begin to feel ill, you disappear, and then what happens next? Well, um, 
I open my eyes and I'm somewhere else. Sometimes it takes me a little while to figure out where exactly. Especially if I'm out in the countryside or there's no one else around. But sometimes it's really obvious, like Greece was, or Victorian England, or the Civil War. Oh, God, that was very loud. It must be very interesting, seeing these things that are only familiar to us through history books. You get to witness events that no one else does. Yeah, I, I guess. It was definitely really neat at first, but um, now I'm just tired. I honestly think I would just prefer to go to an IMAX movie. <laughs> it would probably smell a lot better. I'm curious, Sam. Why come to therapy now, after all these years? I don't know. I'm just fed up, I guess. This week, I turned 25. And my parents, well, in their will, well, I got the rest of the family money on my 25th birthday. And it's a lot of money. <laughs> and, you know, what, what am I supposed to do with it? Share it with all the friends that I don't have? Save it for a big wedding that will never happen? I mean, what's the point of buying a nice house or traveling around the world if I can't enjoy any of it? Why wouldn't you be able to enjoy any of it? Because I can't enjoy anything. I'm terrified all the time. When I'm not actively disappearing, I'm worried about disappearing. I, I'm worried about, about being caught, about hurting someone, about not coming back. When, when I go away, I'm nowhere. I'm invisible. I'm no one. And it's not better here where I have no life, no friends. I, I don't exist anywhere. I'm so scared of everything and I'm starting to lose my mind. Sam, <laughs> Sam, you do exist. You're here right now with me. You are important, and you are a part of this world. Even though it seems like you can simply vanish, you will never truly... Sam, are you all right? You look very pale. I, I don't believe this. Of all the times... Oh, God, I'm so sorry about that. Patient grew increasingly panicked and vanished. No sign of a vortex or any other manipulation of space. Her person flickered slightly before disappearing, but there were no other symptoms beyond a paleness in her face. I've never seen anything like it. And that was episode one of The Bright Sessions, starring Julie Morizawa and Lauren Shippen, and produced, directed, and written by Lauren Shippen. We're going to hear a conversation I had with Lauren in a minute, but first, some community news! Wooden Overcoats, the podcast sitcom about rival funeral directors on a channel island, is into its second week of its Kickstarter campaign to fund its second season. They're looking to raise 8,000 pounds, and after just over a week of campaigning, they're more than halfway there. You can find out more by going to kickstarter.com and searching for Wooden Overcoats. Oh, and if you're in London and you're going to be near Hyde Park on Sunday, June 26th, head on over to the Green Park Station by the Diana Fountain. That's the little statue of the woman with the dog. If you want to hang out with the creators of Wooden Overcoats and Lauren and Anna from the Bright Sessions. Lauren and Anna happen to be gallivanting around the UK as we speak, although Lauren currently lives in Los Angeles, as you'll hear in our upcoming interview. Uh, but yeah, they're all having an adorable podcast picnic. You can find out more at the Wooden Overcoats blog at woodenovercoats.com.
Com. Ars Paradoxica is approaching the end of its hashtag money is time campaign on Patreon. If you haven't heard this fabulous drama, give it a listen. I'll be talking to show creators Misha and Dan two weeks from now, and I want them to have enough money to keep on making the internet's best Cold War time travel sci-fi melodrama. Is that too much to ask? You can follow their campaign at patreon.com slash arsparadoxica. And now, on with the show, let's have a listen to my conversation with Lauren Shippen, the writer, director, actor, and producer behind The Bright Sessions. Lauren Shippen, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to talk to you. I remember reading, and you can tell me whether or not this is this is true when my research panned out. Uh, I remember reading that you'd written the role of Dr. Bright for yourself, but that I, you were taking a class, an acting class with Julia Morizawa, and is that, number one, is that is that the case? Is that how you know her? Um, yes. Yeah, we met at a studio called BGB Studio in North Hollywood, and that's actually where... Um, Brigan Snow, who plays Caleb, also came from, as well as Charlie Ian, who plays Damien. So it's been a really nice place to pull actors from. It really, it's it's so stupid. I sit in that class and I'm, and I'm just surrounded by incredibly talented people. And I, I leave every Sunday night just totally inspired to write stuff for them, which is really, really nice. That's that's really lovely. Yeah, it's it's a great environment. So my understanding of the situation is that you wrote you wrote Dr. Bright for yourself, but when Julia came in to read for it, you had to give her the part. So that is half true. I, I think I have said something along those lines elsewhere on the internet. Um, but basically, the character of Sam was actually the first character that I came up with. And I knew that I wanted to play her. But I did briefly flirt with the idea of playing both characters, which would have been a nightmare. Um, it would have been an absolute disaster. But I, one of the reasons I chose to do a podcast was it seemed like something that I could reasonably do on my own. You know, I had a nice mic already. I had a, I, a vague knowledge of how to edit sound, um, and it doesn't really cost anything. So I thought, okay, maybe I can just do the entire thing by myself, and I can voice two characters, do two different voices, and just have a conversation with myself. And then I was in class, and I hadn't written any of the podcast yet, but the idea was sort of floating around in my head. And Julia did a scene, and I was just like, I, how could I be so stupid? Of course, this person has to play this character. And hopefully she'll say yes. And she did. And that's been such a gift that really keeps on giving. I didn't want to get super heavy, super fast. But you you said that you you wrote the, the character of Sam originally for yourself. And I, I read on Tumblr that she's, she's kind of based on you uh, and your experiences with uh, general anxiety disorder. Are you comfortable talking about that? I don't, yeah, I don't absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. How, how has your experience with anxiety influenced Sam's character design? Um, Sam is in some ways like the worst case scenario of what my anxiety would become of being incredibly isolated and then being further isolated by this crazy thing, the fact that she goes back in time and can't do anything when she has panic attacks. Um, I, my parents are both very much alive and well and wonderful people. And um, I certainly do not time travel. But the year that I was writing The Bright Sessions, I was really, my panic attacks were sort of at their worst. And I was really struggling with anxiety. And living in LA, living in a city that's kind of isolating, I just, that kind of scenario kept coming back into my mind of this person trying to find kind of a way to cope with the anxiety and a way to maybe look at it in an interesting way. Um, and also, I think just the feeling of of not having control over what's going on in your body. Um, 
just the fact that she gets nervous and then vanishes. That, to me, kind of was a good way to talk about like the feeling of a panic attack and how it feels like you're being taken out of the present time and you're being taken out of your own body and sort of being forced through this physical trial that you don't know when it's going to end or when it's going to happen again. And that uncertainty and that fear. I mean, Sam, especially in the first season, is very much a character based in fear. Um, So kind of pouring all of my own personal experiences with that into her was really cathartic and also kind of fun because then when I did have a panic attack, I would kind of just try and think of, okay, well, I wonder where Sam would go right now. What scenarios can I think of? And it would sort of distract me from my anxiety and pull me back. And so it became a really interesting creative outlet for that anxiety. Because something I was thinking about uh, the show is that all the all the characters have their ability that is comorbid with some kind of mental illness, right? Uh, or and, and I, I think it's a really interesting way to build empathy in the audience um, to to really provide this this very concrete illustration of what of what anxiety representing anxiety through this metaphor of time travel of like not only losing control over your body but losing control of yourself in time i found that to be really uh, a really compelling idea thank you yeah i i get a lot of messages from people who have either struggled with mental illnesses or are just interested in mental health as a subject and they will say you know, it's so nice to be able to relate to these characters in this way and to see things that I struggle with through a different lens. And those messages over any others that I get really mean the most to me. The fact that people who have struggled with similar things or things that I've never struggled with, but that the characters struggle with, and that they're able to commiserate and they're able to empathize and, and take something away from it and kind of escape into other people's problems, you know, rather than their own is, is a really nice thing that's come out of it. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I think I think the hook of the atypical abilities is a really is a really nice way to get inside someone else's mind. Yeah, and it definitely is a great uh, like creative writing tool as well to have someone like Chloe be able to read minds. You can get a lot, of, or you can get around a lot of stuff that way, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> which is really nice. Or, or get into a lot of stuff. Yes, exactly, and it's kind of easier to frame exposition that way. And I mean, as a writing tool, I think writing therapy sessions is a great way to to start writing a conversation because you do have to explain things that you normally don't have to explain in normal conversations. So it can kind of be a nice way to, to break into writing dialogue, I think. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, because it seems like there's a lot of, of therapy research, some born out from perhaps your own experience, but certainly some from uh, a consulting therapist, right? How does your consulting therapist work with you on the show? So my consulting therapist is my sister, um, which was very lucky for me. Um, That's so sweet. Yeah, which is, she's, she's an amazing, amazing psychologist. She got her uh, master's degree in international disaster psychology. What? Um, what is that? <laughs> it's dealing um, with refugees and with uh, war-torn countries, uh, oh you know, God. war survivors, things like that. So she's dealing with things sort of very separate from your average therapy. Mm-hmm. She's dealing with um, people who have gone through great deals of trauma and have been displaced and, and whatnot. Um, but she still has two degrees in psychology. So I sent her each of the first season scripts and just kind of asked, you know, would a therapist say this? How would they How would they say this? And she would give me notes back about, well, she would use this terminology and not this terminology. She wouldn't really ask that question that way. She might try to talk about this thing by asking this. 
Um, so it was really more about the language and less about the actual terminology or, okay. or the actual um, psychology behind everything. Because at the end of the day, I, even though there are certain allegories at play for mental illnesses, I am creating my own <laughs> abilities and then dealing with things that are in the realm of science fiction that I was just sort of making a lot of it up. Um, but, you know, I did, I did look up things and I did ask specific questions when they came up about certain disorders. Um, but mostly it was really just about the way that a therapist would interact with their patient. Is Dr. Bright a good therapist? Like, to what degree is she invested in helping her patients? And to what extent is that confounded by her ulterior motives? And I recognize that's kind of a spoilery. Spoiler. It is. Well, it is. But I think I can answer part of it. <laughs> um, I do think that she she cares about her patients. She does. And she wants to do good by them. And she wants to help them survive in the world with these extraordinary circumstances that they have. That being said, she is not a perfect therapist and she is not a uh, selfless therapist. She, I think a really good therapist will, you know, put obviously their patient's priorities in front of theirs in a session. Uh, Dr. Bright does not do that. She definitely has her own priorities that if they do conflict with the patients, she's probably going to focus on her priorities rather than the patients. Um but at the end of the day, I don't think she – I'm trying to think of what I can say that won't spoil anything. I, I don't think she wants to cause anyone harm. She's not out to harm any of her patients, but she definitely is a very flawed human who gets blindsided – or not blindsided, but distracted by her own motives. Have you ever done cognitive behavioral therapy? Dr. Bright seems to recommend a lot of meditation and mindfulness exercises for Sam. Yeah. So I think uh, the assumption that people would have when listening to the podcast would be that I have been in therapy for a while and I haven't actually. I just started uh, back in February um, for the first time ever. And it's as advertised has very much helped. It is a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And I have been doing a lot of CBT and a lot of mindfulness. Uh, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was really funny, actually, because I, I go into the therapist's office and she hits record on her iPhone to record the session. Oh, and she, she records? She records them because um, it's, like it's like a teaching, like uh, the, the center that I go to, they do research and they do teaching and stuff. So they you have to like sign this form saying you're okay with being recorded so that they can learn from it. And they, you know, they review it with the higher-ups and the higher-ups give them advice and stuff, and then they delete it, and it goes away. But she hits record, and there's like a ticking clock on the wall, and I'm like, oh, my God, I've walked into the <laughs> podcast that <laughs> I've created. This is so weird. Um, so, is it, is it cheaper for being a teaching hospital or like a teaching therapist office? I like, am I am thankfully still on my parents' insurance, so uh, it's covered for me, which is very, very nice. Um, thanks, Obama. Yeah, thanks, Obama. Uh, but yeah, I, the mindfulness is something that is very good for anxiety because it, a lot of anxiety, it does take you out of the present and mm -hmm. being, you know, a healthy, mindful person is about being in the present. So there is a lot of meditation or not meditation necessarily, but meditative like exercises, um, and thought exercises and things like that. And I mean, it was interesting because a lot of the things that we've been doing in the past five months in therapy is a lot of stuff that I just sort of instinctually was writing into the podcast. And I think, weirdly, a lot of that actually comes from my acting background. 
because there's a lot of the same kind of stuff in acting technique of being very present and being very mindful and, and kind of examining your thoughts and thinking about thought processes and, and whatnot, that yeah. it all kind of applies. I wanted to talk about some of the technique training that you've had because mm. I don't I, – I'd never heard about the Alexander technique. I don't know anything about it. Oh, yeah. The um, Alexander technique is one of my favorites. So it seems to me to be – and you just let me know if I'm grossly misconstruing <laughs> it um, – kind of a constructivist technique of acting where a lot of it is about um, a posture and body positioning and relieving – I think the key word was tension in the body mm -hmm. in order to – yeah, um, Alexander. Yeah, help me technique, out here. <laughs> yeah, no, Alexander technique is actually it's a technique that actors use, but it is not an acting technique. Okay. So it's something that an actor came up with in I think the late 1800s. I my history on it is a little bit fuzzy, um, but it is used by uh, by musicians, by instrumentalists, by conductors, any dancers, anyone who's using their body in any kind of physical way for performance. Um, and essentially it's about kind of realigning your body to achieve what we instinctively do when we're babies. Okay. So a lot of the, um, 20th century development of the technique had to do with wa watching animals and watching babies who move in a way that is very instinctual and very natural. And then when, as we grow older, we're stuffed into desk chairs, into cars, and and into situations in which we're kind of having to mold our body to our environment. I'm very conscious of my terrible posture right now. <laughs> Me too. I'm already sitting up straighter just talking about it. And we, we lose the alignment of our spine and we get bad posture and we lose the ability to breathe correctly. Um, so in college, I was, a, I was a music major in college, but I was also briefly sort of a theater major. And took Alexander Technique to help with posture and breathing and to kind of gain more control over my body because that's something that you need a lot of in both singing and acting. And it's a lot of walking around like a monkey. It's a lot of crawling on the floor. <laughs> it's lots of like weird yoga poses and weird breathing exercises. But I would recommend it to anyone who spends any time of the day sitting. Like it's, it's just – it really loosens up your body. It kind of reminds you of bones and muscles that you forgot you had. And it really gets you a little bit more mindful, to use that word again, a little bit more mindful mm -hmm. of what's going on in your body. So you – so okay. So you were a music major. Mm -hmm. And I saw on your resume that you played Iolanthe. I did. I, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. I was in a yeah, Gilbert yeah. and Sullivan company in, in college. So that was my senior year. That was Symphonicron? Symphonicron, yep. Um, so okay. So but you're not, you're not from – you're not from Williamsburg. You're from New York. Is that correct? Yes. Wow. You've really done your research. Um, <sighs> trying. <laughs> yeah. I'm from New York. I actually, um, I was born in Manhattan and then actually lived in the Bay Area for a little while. Oh, where'd you um, live? In Piedmont. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then when I was eight years old, I think we moved back to New York and I grew up in Westchester County and then down to Virginia for college. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I also have a soft spot in my heart for Gilbert and Sullivan. That was always a very important uh, part of my childhood and young adulthood. It is such great stuff. It's incredibly clever and silly. I think that there's like a level of silliness in Gilbert and Sullivan that's very hard to find in modern mm -hmm. entertainment. Um, and the writing is just brilliant. So I know, I know that we talked about this not on the phone, um, but are there? <laughs> so this is kind of like a like a a goofy setup question. Are there plans for um, like a musical episode of? Of the Bright Sessions. 
Um, I would love to do something like that. I have no idea what form that would take or if my actors would be game. Um, Brigham sings. I, I, Anna sings. Um, I don't know if Julia sings. I'm sure she could. There's nothing I've ever found that she couldn't do. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know if everyone would be up for that, but I am certainly game for any kind of musical expression ever. Um, I would love to, I just don't know. It would have to sure. be some weird sort of like dream sequence or, um, as someone very clever suggested a live show. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe someday down the line, but yeah. Do you do you Never have a lot never. of anxiety around live performance? <laughs> um not not necessarily. I mean, I've live performance is what I grew up doing and and theater is certainly where I've come from. Um but I've never run a show and kind of come up with a show myself and then produced it and directed it and released it and performed in it. Um so doing a live thing that I was responsible for every part of was definitely a little anxiety inducing. How, how did you fall into radio drama? You were saying earlier that, you know, you wanted to do a podcast because it was an expensive. It was something you could do on your own. But how did you – what made you decide, I want to do a fiction podcast? Um, I was listening to um, two different radio shows that are so unbelievably unrelated to each other and to what we're doing that it seems like a strange connection. But I was listening to Welcome to Night Vale. Of course, it's, you know, everyone's first introduction to audio drama or most people's. And uh, Cabin Pressure, which is a BBC radio sitcom. And I was spending a lot of time in LA traffic, of course, and listening to these shows and just laughing and, and really enjoying the the different approaches that they took. You know, Welcome to Night Vale is one person for most of it, talking into a microphone. Cabin Pressure is recorded in front of a live audience and has sound effects and a big cast. Um, and I just thought that it was such an interesting format. And it's I, I had a radio show in college, just a music radio show, and I, I did an internship at NPR one summer, and I, I listened to tons and tons of nonfiction podcasts. So I really liked kind of consuming entertainment that way. And once I heard Welcome to Night Vale, and then I got into Thrilling Adventure Hour and Cabin Pressure and everything, I sort of thought, okay, well, why can't I make something that can be consumed you know, th through headphones? That seems like something that I could do. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And then by the time that we, by the time that I'd written the first season, things like Limetown and Black Tapes and, um, The Message were coming out and sort of, you know, more mystery type dramas. And that kind of, I'd already written the first season, but that kind of like gave me a lot of ideas about how to interact with the audio drama community and how to release this thing and how to think about it as a future project and kind of going forward. So, it was really just, I guess, a love of listening to things. What was the name of your radio show in college? It was called um, Immoral, Illegal, or Fattening, um, <laughs> which okay. which is um, a part of a, a P.G. Wodehouse quote, which is, anything in life that's any fun is either immoral, illegal, or fattening. Love it. And I am absolutely a Wodehouse like fan nut. Um, I love, love, love his books and had a blog in high school that was called that. That was kind of reviews of music and, and movies and TV shows. I'm sure it's still out there on the internet. I'm, someone's probably going to go look it up and make fun of how terrible my writing was. Um, and it was just kind of a phrase that I really liked of 
just a silly fun phrase about things that are entertaining. It's wonderful to hear your story of how you came into the medium um, because I feel like there's been this community kind of out in the wilderness for the past 25, 35 years, at least in the United States, right? Um, and and the internet, like the social web has really enabled people to find each other much more easily uh, and, and um, like cheaper and cheaper digital recording tools and recording software and editing software have just really democratized this medium in a way that really makes me deeply happy. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's unbelievable how much is out there right now. And I, I feel like I'm still kind of green in in the community just because I've mm-hmm. only been doing this podcast for nine months and I've only been listening to fiction podcasts for about two years. And yet you're kind of in it now, right? right? Like you're yeah. kind of in the community. Our Fair City started in 2011, maybe, Gosh. you know, and we we labored in obscurity for some time before we really started interacting with other people. Yeah. First through conventions. I mean, that's the reason I have... This gig now is because I met uh, Fred Greenhalge, um, who's the executive producer of this podcast right. and several others, um, at uh, Convergence in Minneapolis in like, I want to say 2012. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think I definitely got lucky with the timing. Like, I feel like we released this at kind of the perfect time because you know, it hasn't, the podcast world hasn't been totally overrun by audio dramas. Like there are still, not in the sense that like, you know, YouTube, like that community, there's so many millions of options that it's impossible to find anything. You know, we're still, when we talk about audio drama, we're still talking a couple of hundred probably. Um, and, and a fewer number that are still ongoing, but it's rapidly growing and it's getting more and more popular that I feel like we kind of launched at just the perfect time and you know, if there's anything I've learned about being in the entertainment industry, so much of it is just timing and luck. And I definitely feel very, very lucky. What have you been listening to lately? Oh, boy. Um, and that can be that can be music, that can be radio drama, anything. What have you been listening? What have you been putting in your ears? I've been I've been listening to um, Beyonce's Lemonade pretty much on mm-hmm. loop for, for <laughs> three weeks or whatever, however long it's been out. Sure. Um, and in terms of audio drama, um, uh, Archive 81, Small Town Horror, Return Home. Those are kind of the three horror podcasts that I've gotten into recently. And then I've been keeping up with Black Tapes and Tannis. Um, in terms of comedy, I mean, I just finished Wooden Overcoats a couple weeks ago and I'm already like dying for more. I just listened to the interview you did with them. It's so good. Um, and uh, EOS 10, I'm finally getting into that. Greater Boston um, is really fun and interesting, and I'm really enjoying listening to that because my dad's whole family is from Massachusetts, so it's kind of like being home, which is really nice. And then, like maybe like 20 nonfiction podcasts. It's insane. My podcast feed is a disaster zone right now. <laughs> but I mean, this is one of the great things about podcasts because I work remotely from home and because I live in LA where there's lots of traffic. I am basically listening to something 24 hours you know, a day, seven days a week. And it's different from television where I can listen to it while I'm cooking and while I'm driving and while I'm cleaning up my apartment, which I think is so nice. And I think one of the reasons that it's become such a popular medium because we are living in an increasingly multitask-based world. So the fact that people can be entertained while doing the more mundane things, I think is a really big boon for the audio drama uh, world. I think the word intimate is really kind of hits the nail on the head. I think that there is this feeling 
even I, even with nonfiction podcasts where you feel closer to the person making it than you do in film or television um, or even reading a book. You know, I think one of the reasons that serial was such a huge phenomenon, I think it's, you know, it's an incredible story. It's incredible reporting. But there was this feeling that we were all along with Sarah solving this mystery, which you just don't get in the same way in a TV show. You you get the kind of water cooler kind of talk where you will watch the episode and the next day talk about the mystery with your coworkers or your friends. But when you're listening to Serial, you really feel like you're having a conversation with her. And I think that that carries through in audio drama as well, where you feel like you can be in these places with these people. Like, Wolf 359 takes place in space, but you still feel like you're there with them because you're not distracted by special effects or by the fact that you're sitting on your couch watching something. It feels like you can close your eyes and you can be in that space station. I was recently listening to an episode of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne where he interviewed Gina Davis. And Gina Davis picked up archery in her 40s and got super good at it and, uh, you know, was like good enough to almost be in the Olympics. And she found that the practice of archery could settle her mind and quiet negative self-talk. Um, your resume counts archery and riflery among your skills. Um, do you still do you still practice either of those sports? Um, riflery, not at all. That's sort of one of those things on my resume that's kind of an exaggeration, um, <laughs> of which there are only a few. Um, archery, I, I do still have a bow, a working bow. Um, it is back at my parents' house in New York because I have nowhere to shoot it here in LA. Um, my parents have a big backyard. So whenever I go home and visit them, I'll, I'll take it out and practice. I have definitely lost a lot of my, um, a lot of my abilities since high school. But the thing that I'm doing now that kind of does what Gina Davis says, kind of clears my mind and, and gets out some of the anxiety is boxing. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And that's been, been a really nice, nice thing. Um, and nice and yeah the whole the whole wind up for that question was you know what's going on in your head when you're aiming at something but similarly mm. what what is going what do you what is what is the practice of boxing what do you use that for in your life well i think to to answer the question that you you're not really asking what what goes through your head when you're aiming i think applies to boxing as well which is okay. kind of nothing and that's the beauty of it I mean, there's the focus on the target, whether it's an you know, archery target or, or a bag that you're hitting or someone's glove or something like that. But it kind of narrows down to that point and it's more of just a reaction to something. I mean, particularly in boxing, you're oftentimes just reacting and then making a move. So you, I don't know, you think so quickly that it kind of feels like not thinking at all. Um, which is really nice. Like you know, boxing is sort of the hour of my day where I can get out a lot of physical stress and get out a lot of energy, particularly because I spend most of the day sitting at a desk. And it also just keeps my mind off of everything else because you have to focus so that you don't get hit in the face, you know? Um, <laughs> and that's kind of a nice thing to have such a singular focus and it really ends up feeling like you're not thinking at all, which is such a hard thing to achieve. Now, I don't want to spoil anything for the show, but there's a gay relationship that functions as a central plot thread. It's a high school romance, and it defies expectations in some way, and how some social aspects of it are just completely vaulted over. And more the obstacle of it um, is the stigma of one of the characters' condition. Uh, the reason he's in therapy is the thing that presents an obstacle. Um, was there anything specific that motivated the choice to make this relationship the central love story, or did it just happen? Um, I 
think I think the motivation was just the character of Caleb and how he is a character that I think in some ways defies expectation. Um, you know, when you kind of hear the description of him, it's he's a 16 year old like macho football player who you know has this problem and has to go to therapy. And you you would kind of expect a lot of I think a lot of posturing from that and a lot of you know beating chest masculinity and one of the reasons I made his ability empathy is because I didn't want to do that. I thought, how interesting would it be for someone who's in an environment that's probably pushing them to be very masculine and kind of focus on maybe more of the physical and less of the less of the cerebral or the emotional? How interesting would it be for them to have a problem that makes them emotional? And from that, I think it just, you know, in defying expectations further, like gay football player. Um, well, I mean, he's, his sexuality is undefined, but that's the easiest way to describe it probably for people who listen. And so I think, I don't know, I think that it just was a natural progression of who he was and the fact that he's someone who is so wrapped up in dealing with his own ability that he doesn't really care about expectations of him, which I think is something that's so refreshing and yeah and i just i see so much entertainment that kind of you know do, do the same tropes over and over again and i think that there's a place for clichés and there's a place for tropes and we certainly fall into those sometimes and sometimes i do tropes intentionally in the show but that was one that i just sort of thought you know what like i i want him to have this relationship with this person and that person happens to be male and that doesn't really matter um, and maybe it matters to his teammates, maybe it doesn't, but that's something that we can figure out down the line, but it doesn't matter to him, um, because he's someone that, yeah, it's just, is just defying expectation. That's kind of who I wanted him to be. I'd like to talk for a little bit about Damien, um, because I find him so electrifyingly frightening just as a, as a presence in the show. Um, first of all, have you ever known anyone like Damien? Um, no, I've known people sort of adjacent to Damien. Damien is sort of a combination of a couple of different types that I think everyone and especially every woman meets sometime in their life, which is, you know, a combination of the guy who thinks that he's really cool and thinks that he's like kind of dangerous and that makes him kind of annoying. And then also the guy who, who thinks that the world should bend to him and who thinks that, you know, well, it's, it's you know, this is what I want. So obviously the world's going to give me that. Um, and that is, you know, definitely I think a thing that I've known a lot of specifically, you know, privileged white men in my life who've kind of had that attitude. Damien obviously is much more toxic than anybody in my life. I mean, thankfully, I've never met anyone quite as as dangerous or as toxic as Damien. But he's, I mean, he just kind of walks around. You might as well just stamp dark triad on his chest. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And that's, I mean... In talking about what tropes we fall into, he is completely a cliche of a character. And that's – this might ruin him for some people, but that's that's entirely intentional. He sees himself as, as the villain and as someone to be feared, even if at his core, maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. And he is a character that is that way because he ch- changed a lot as a necessity <laughs> – um, and this is sort of pulling back the curtain. I, I, I may have mentioned this before elsewhere on the internet, but um, I had written the first nine episodes. So before he appears, but we hear about him um, last spring. 
so about a year ago. And then we record the whole whole first season. I'm starting to write the second season. It's fall. It's like November. We're launching. And I watch Jessica Jones. And the villain in Jessica Jones is exactly like to a T the character that I had been imagining for Damien. And I just sort of I'm sitting there with my jaw on the floor because I'm like, oh my God, I have to I have to change him now because the person that I had in mind is exactly this and they're doing it way better than I ever could. So he he sort of changes with all of that. And I think that that ended up being a blessing because um, Charlie Ian, who plays Damien, and I think is a like 90% of the reason that people find him interesting and or frightening, uh, brought in a lot of very interesting ideas about the character, really fleshed him out, really gave him dimensions. And as a result, he's been a lot more fun to write than I had initially given him credit for. So speaking of tropes, Lauren, you host a video series on YouTube called According to Tumblr, which gently satirizes the memes and tropes of that community as as applies to various fandoms. Um, how does it feel to have your own work tumblered? Um, it is it's incredibly bizarre and unbelievably wonderful. I yeah, I started that channel almost two years ago because I find fandoms completely fascinating. I think that it's so interesting how people consume culture and then they share it with each other and they transform it and they apply it to different parts of their lives. Um, I was an American studies minor in college and wrote a lot of papers about how pop culture influences our society and influences the way that we think as a culture. And I think that fandom is kind of a microcosm of that. And so I remember when I f saw the first fan art of, of the Bright Sessions, it was a, a, some sketches of Chloe. I'm, I'm pretty sure I started crying because it just, it felt like a, a dream come true to have people who in a community that I have long been a part of and loved and loved to interact with and observe take the thing that I created and kind of bring it in with open arms and start to interact with it and transform it. I think that that's so exciting. And that to me is the highest compliment that you can get when someone loves your thing enough that they want to change it or they want to draw it or they want to write about it or think about it or talk about it. I think that that's, that's such a high compliment. Can, can we talk about, speaking of fandom, can we talk about um, mixtapes? And yes. what they what they represent and how you use mixtapes to interact with Bright Sessions fandom. Yeah. So um, anyone who's who's known me for any long period of time has probably gotten some sort of playlist from me. Um, in high school, I was sort of notorious for coming to school with uh, CDs, with mix CDs that I had burned from my computer and handing them out to people. Um, so much so that I ended up starting a music appreciation club in high school that was basically just a, a way for me to to organize. CD swaps with my friends. Um, I did lots of burning of CDs, probably illegally, but it's fine. Um, and then I, I won't. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> thank you. Not like this is going to be broadcast anywhere. Nah. Um, no, but I, I, I've I've long swapped mixes with people, and you know, given gifts, and the art of constructing a playlist is something that I've been very into since I was a kid, and so. Sometime when I was a teenager, I started doing it for roles that I was playing. And when I was preparing a role, um, this bizarrely does not apply at all to musical theater roles, um, which is what I did a lot of in, in high school and college because the music is already there that you don't really need to supplement it. But for any straight plays sure. that I was in or anything else, 
I would start to make mixes for the characters because there are a couple things that I, I think, you know, I think each actor has their own process for developing a character. And for me, it's figuring out what shoes does the character wear and what music do they listen to? <laughs> and okay. I would just build these playlists. Um, so when I was writing the first season, I just totally instinctively started building playlists for each character. And I would hear a song and I would say, oh, that, this is so Sam. This is, And I, then I would want to go and write. It was sort of an inspirational tool for me. I would listen to them while I was writing or while I was getting ready to sit down and write. And then once I had my cast, I sent it to them and said, you know, don't read too much into these, but here's kind of like an aesthetic, an idea of who these characters are. And it's sort of spiraled out from there. It's It's been a thing that people have really embraced. And then um, there have been in-universe mixes this, this season of a playlist that one character makes for another. And that's been really fun um, because I certainly personally, you know, express affection and feeling towards people with playlists. And it's fun to kind of impose that habit onto characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I think people are really enjoying it. Um, and it's also, yeah, sorry. And, and also I just love the act of introducing people to new music. I think that's such a big part of it. I, I try to pick songs that maybe are off the beaten path a little bit, or, or maybe that people aren't going to be super familiar with because then maybe they'll listen and maybe that will be their new favorite artist. And if I had any hand in that, then that makes me happy. Yeah. As a, as a former uh, as a former college DJ myself, I think it's, I find it really hilarious to to see these like 14 to 17 year old Bright Sessions fans on Tumblr getting super into ABBA all of a sudden. <laughs> That's like I, amazing and hilarious to me. I never expected that. Yeah, the ABBA thing was so unexpected. I have a huge soft spot for ABBA personally. Mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of threw that song on there as a sort of joke. I mean, it, it, it is meant in earnest from the character who puts it there. But the, and the song in question, for the record, is uh, Super, Super Trooper. Trooper right? Yes, which is about being on the road and touring and, and being exhausted from that and then seeing that person in the crowd and, and kind of getting inspiration and, and motivation from them. And that was kind of the scenario I was picturing with these two characters at the, at the football game. And so I put it on there as kind of just like a funny throwaway song. And yeah, it's become like this big kind of inside joke in, in within the listeners, which is so wonderful. And the fact that, yeah, there are a bunch of 15-year-olds now into ABBA makes me so happy because ABBA's the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. And a fabulous time was had by all. Lauren, I hope you're enjoying yourself in England right now. It sounds wonderful. Hey, I'm afraid our hour is up. We can pick up where we left off next time, though. But before you go, I have one last thing to tell you. And that's the credits. He's a Class D pyrokinetic with a flair for the flammable. I'm talking about our producer, Matthew Boudreau, the Mondo Fondo master of the flambo. They read my minds and they read your mail. Let's give it up for Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, the telepaths who do all my research and make me look smart. His very presence sends shivers down the spine. I do what he tells me to do. I can't help it, he's so magnetic. He's Fred Greenhouch, and he's our executive producer. The music you're listening to as I speak comes to us courtesy of DJ Stranger Danger of Oakland, California, who has one atypical ability for sure, sweet beats. Thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. 
Until next time, I'm David Reinstrom, and I'm telling you stories. Trust me. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.